I'd like to ask you to turn with me to our text for this morning, Psalm 132. Psalm 132. Like I said earlier, we are in a sermon series looking at the Psalms of Ascent. We've been in the series for quite a while and we've been using it throughout Advent as well. And we are up to Psalm 132. And so this is what the psalmist writes to God's people back then as well as to us as God's people today. Lord, remember David and all his self-denial. He swore an oath to the Lord. He made a vow to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or go to my bed. I will allow no sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling for the mighty one of Jacob. We heard it in Ephrathah. We came upon it in the fields of Jaar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool saying, Arise, Lord, and come to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. May your priests be clothed with your righteousness and may your faithful people sing for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not reject your anointed one. For the Lord swore an oath to David, a sure oath he will not revoke. One of your descendants I will place on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and the statutes I teach them, then their sons will sit on your throne forever and ever. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling, saying, This is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned, for I have desired it. I will bless her with abundant provisions, and her poor I will satisfy with food. I will clothe her priests with salvation, and all her faithful people will ever sing for joy. Here I will make a horn grow for David. I will set up a lamp for my anointed one. I will clothe his enemies with shame. But his head, on his head, he will be adorned with a radiant crown. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, it it seems to me like musical artists are releasing greatest hits albums earlier and earlier these days. Uh, I don't know about you, but greatest hits albums uh, always seem to me at least to be something that they would do after an artist's career was over. You know, after a long and fruitful run in in the music industry, um, an artist would retire, a few years would go by, and then their label would collect all of their best songs, all of their hits together, and then release that collection uh, to the public. Um, But these days, it seems like that whole process is speeding up more and more. It seems like more and more artists are releasing greatest hits albums while they're still active, uh, right in the middle of their careers, and sometimes, before they've really even had enough hits to actually justify a Greatest Hits album. Uh, I don't remember who it was, but I recently saw a Greatest Hits album being released by some artist, and that was my first thought. They're releasing a Greatest Hits album already? They've hardly even done anything. Um, I don't even know, really, any of their hits. Maybe that's just me, but... um, And yet, in a similar way, That's actually what the psalmist does here in Psalm 132. The Psalms of Ascent aren't over yet. We've still got two more to look at, which we'll do next weekend. And yet the psalmist puts together a greatest hits collection of sorts here. He gathers up and and collects a number of the different themes from the Psalms that we've already looked at in this series. He combines them together and then he sort of rehashes them a little bit here in Psalm 132. And the goal, I think, the psalmist's intent with that is to reflect just a little bit more 
on what those aspects of our faith mean for us as pilgrims and disciples of Jesus Christ, those who are walking this long road of obedience in the Christian faith. Uh, Before we get into all that, though, it's important to note that Psalm 132 is unique among the Psalms of Ascent in at least two major ways. Uh, First, Psalm 132 is by far the longest psalm in this sequence. Uh, The Psalms of Ascent are, are, as a whole, characteristically brief. Um, They're short, they're meant to be concise, succinct, and to the point, and that's part of what would have made them memorable and easy for the Jewish pilgrims to memorize and sing on their way to Jerusalem uh, to worship God at the temple there, but not Psalm 132. While the other Psalms of of Ascent average about six verses, 5.92 to be exact, not that I did the math or anything, Psalm 132 clocks in at a whopping 18 verses, which when you look at the Psalms as a whole, isn't actually that out of the ordinary, but for this collection of Psalms, it is. The other thing that makes Psalm 132 stand out, though, is its specificity. Because unlike most of the other Psalms of Ascent, which are kind of general and intentionally meant to be vague, Psalm 132 is referencing quite clearly and directly, in fact, a specific historical situation in Israel's past. And that's because Psalm 132 is actually a poetic retelling of the events of 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now in case you don't know that chapter off the top of your head, 2 Samuel 7 is the passage where Israel's greatest king, David, decides to build a temple for God in Jerusalem. Uh, Now at that point in the story, David has actually not been king for all that long. He's actually only just ascended to the throne. In the wake of the power vacuum that's left by the previous king's death uh, in the books of Samuel, David has been anointed, he's fought a few battles to secure his power, and he's conquered and made Jerusalem his capital in order to consolidate his control over the country. And then as part of that, he also brings the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to Jerusalem, which is a symbol that not only will he, David, rule his people from Jerusalem, but God himself will also. And yet, something about that doesn't sit right with David, because once he gets the ark of the Lord to Jerusalem, he sort of realizes he doesn't have a place to put it. He pitches a tent for it and and kind of sticks it there, um, but that doesn't really seem to be a very good solution to him. And so in the opening verses of 2 Samuel 7, David turns to Nathan, one of God's prophets, and he says, here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. And so it's clear, David is going to do something to remedy this situation. Uh, The ark of God can't stay in a tent, he, he reasons. And so he decides to build God a temple to serve as his earthly house and as the place where God will dwell among his people, the people of Israel. And it seems like a good plan. In fact, Nathan even says to David, whatever you have in mind, go and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night, God turns the tables on David and he sends Nathan to go and tell him, are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? God goes on to tell David that instead he will build him a house, a household to be exact. God promises David that he will establish him as king 
Through him, he will secure his people, Israel, and their land. And then when David's days are done, God promises to raise up a son for him to sit on his throne and succeed him. He is the one who will build me a house for my name, God says, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. In other words, rather than David building God a house, God tells David that he will establish his household and his royal line. And so that's the context. That's the historical backdrop to this psalm that the psalmist is referencing here. Uh, With a bit of poetic license, he basically retells that story. And he uses it to remind the Jewish pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem why it is that Jerusalem is the place they're on their way to. They're on their way there because that's the city that David chose. More importantly, though, it's the city that God chose. And as a result, it's the city where God established both David's house and also his own as the place where he would rule his people from. In other words, at a basic level, Psalm 132 is a reminder for the Jewish people of why exactly it was that Jerusalem was the central place not only for their government and their politics, not only for their economy, uh, not only for their society and culture, but also for their worship of God. And yet, like we said, uh, at least in the context of the Psalms of Ascent, Psalm 132 also functions as a greatest hits collection of sorts. And that's because in addition to retelling the history of 2 Samuel 7, this psalm also reexamines or reemphasizes a number of the aspects and themes of Christian discipleship that we've been looking at in this series as we've looked at these different psalms. The psalmist sort of takes all of those themes together. He weaves them into a, a comprehensive and collective whole, a beautiful tapestry of what it looks like to live as obedient, faithful Christians and sort of uses that to review for us what we've been looking at in each of these psalms. So for instance, the opening verse of this psalm briefly re-examines the theme that we looked at just last week in Psalm 131, the theme of humility. The psalmist writes, Lord, remember David and all his self-denial. In this verse, the, the the psalmist lifts up David's desire to build a house for God as an example of the kind of humility and selflessness that we should all embody as disciples of God. He switches topics in the next few verses though and emphasizes the theme of work, which we talked about back when we looked at Psalm 127. He writes, he swore an oath to the Lord. He made a vow to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or go to my bed. I will allow no sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids till I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling for the mighty one of Jacob. In other words, the psalmist pictures David sort of working around the clock here, tirelessly, endlessly, until he's able to accomplish what he feels that he is called to do for God. His sole focus is God's glory. All his toil, all his labor, all his efforts are towards that end. And as we talked about when we looked at Psalm 127 a couple of weeks ago, as Christians, our work should do the same. Our work should also be focused on God and have him at its center. So should our worship, though. And that's where the psalmist heads next, because in verses six through nine, he writes, we heard it in Ephrathah, we came upon it in the fields of Jar. Let us go to his dwelling place, let us worship at his footstool, saying, arise, Lord, and come to your resting place, you in the ark of your might. May your priests be clothed with your righteousness. May your faithful people sing for joy. 
And that's exactly what God's people did, right? They did sing for joy. If you read the chapter just before the one that the psalmist is sort of retelling here, uh, 2 Samuel 6, you see that. As the Ark of the Covenant comes into Jerusalem, the people are singing and dancing and praising God. That's what the, the pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem, singing these psalms of ascent, were doing as well. And that's what we still do as Christians, God's people today. We worship and praise him, glorify and honor him, and lift up songs of joy. And that worship forms the basis of the hope that we have as Christians. That's what we looked at two weeks ago with Psalm 130, and as the psalmist says here in verses 10 through 12, for the sake of your servant David, do not reject your anointed one. For the Lord swore an oath to David, a sure oath he will not revoke. One of your own descendants I will place on your throne, If your sons keep my covenant and the statutes I teach them, then your sons will sit on your throne forever and ever. And like we said a couple weeks ago, that's what Christian hope looks like. It looks like knowing, really knowing, that God's promises are true. It's believing beyond a shadow of a doubt that they're going to happen. It's trusting in a basic and sure way that God is God, He will do what he says, and he will be faithful to his promises no matter what. Or another way to say that is that God will continue to be the God of providence he's always been. And that's what the psalmist reflects on next. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling, saying, this is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned, for I have desired it. I will bless her with abundant provisions. Her poor I will satisfy with food. I will clothe her priests with salvation and her joyful people will ever sing for joy. We looked at that theme of God's providence all the way back at the beginning of this series with Psalm 121 and the psalmist brings it up here again. Put simply what he's saying here is God provides for his people. He always has and he always will. And that ongoing providence from God gives us a deep and abiding sense of security, which is what we looked at with Psalm 125. And that's the note that the psalmist chooses to end this greatest hits collection on. He writes, Here I will make a horn grow for David and set up a lamp for my anointed one. I will clothe his enemies with shame, but his head will be adorned with a radiant crown. In other words, what God is saying here is that he will secure David. Horns and crowns are images of strength, endurance, and power in Scripture. And so in these verses, God is promising to make David's life and legacy firm, stable, and fixed. And there you have it. Psalmist plays all his greatest hits from this collection, these Psalms of Ascent. Humility, work, and worship, hope, providence, and security. And along the way, he throws in some nods to a few of the other ones too, like joy, perseverance, service, help, and happiness. Throughout Psalm 132, the psalmist canvases many of the themes that we've looked at throughout our study of these Psalms of Ascent. And the point? Why does he do this? Why does he rehash all of these different ideas here? I think it's this. You see, true discipleship to God, truly following after him, truly living as his people, means actually living those things out. It means living in humility, working for God's glory, worshiping and praising him as we ought. It means putting our hope in him, 
trusting his providence and seeing him as the true source of our security. It means living Christian lives of joy, perseverance, service, help, happiness, and all the rest of the things that we've talked about throughout this series. You see, it's, it's one thing to simply talk or sing about those things, okay? It's one thing to, to believe them and confess them and say they're important. It's one thing to promote them and pay them lip service or even genuinely care about them, but it's another thing entirely to actually do them, to embody them to express them and give them shape in our own day-to-day lives. Or to put it another way, it's another thing to actually obey them. And that's why in his book on these psalms, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, Eugene Peterson says that this psalm, Psalm 132, at a basic level, is about the theme of obedience. Because at its root, what Christian obedience means is gathering up all the other aspects of our faith, combining them into a consistent and collective whole, and then actually living them out, actually obeying them. And that might sound obvious, right? More or less what I'm saying here is to be God's people, to be a disciple, to be a Christian means obeying the things that Christians are supposed to obey, doing the things that Christians are supposed to do. Right? And that makes sense. Actually, I'm not sure, though, that we always do that. You see, for all our debates in the church about the authority and inerrancy or an infallibility of Scripture, for all our talk about doctrine and orthodoxy and right belief, and for all our emphasis on reading the Bible, taking it literally, and holding what it says to be true, I do wonder sometimes how well we actually put all of that into practice. There's a quote I often think about from Dallas Willard's classic book, The Divine Conspiracy. Um, Actually, there's a number of quotes I often think about from that book. Um, But one of them is this. He says, more than any other single thing, the practical irrelevance of actual obedience to Christ accounts for the weakened effect of Christianity in the world today, with its increasing tendency to emphasize political and social action as the primary way to serve God. It also accounts for the practical irrelevance of Christian faith to individual character development and overall personal sanity and well-being. In other words, what, what Willard is saying there is that it is our lack of obedience as Christians, actually living out our faith, that has a direct effect first on our witness to non-believers. Second, on the development, or lack thereof, of our own personal character. And then third, on the overall sanity and well-being of our society as a whole. And that might sound a, a bit dramatic, right? But if you think about it, that's actually how Scripture paints it too. After all, the Old Testament makes clear that when God's people actually live as God's people, it's a light and a witness to the nations. It's formative for them as a nation themselves. And it also leads to flourishing and blessing in their society. And that's what we as Christians are called to be in the world today. We are called to be a light and a witness. We're called to be a well-formed people who embody the character of God in our lives. And then because of that, we're called through our lives and through our witness as Christians to spread flourishing abundance and goodness around us. And here's the key. That all starts with obedience. 
It starts with actually doing the things we say we believe. It starts with actually letting Jesus Christ operate as the Lord of our lives. John Stott writes about that in a book I recently read. In his short little book, Christian Basics, An Invitation to Discipleship, Stott writes this. He says, Jesus Christ wants to be our Lord as well as our Savior. He is, in fact, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and we have no liberty to cut him in two, responding to one half and rejecting the other, for he makes demands as well as offers. He offers us salvation, forgiveness and the liberating power of his spirit, but he also demands our thoughtful and total allegiance. In other words, as our Lord, Jesus demands our obedience. Now it's true. The salvation that we have offered to us through Jesus Christ is free. It's a gift. It's grace. We do nothing to earn it, deserve it, or make ourselves worthy of it. That's why we baptize children, right? That's why we baptized Levi and Gideon and Emmett this morning. Because already before they've done anything, to earn their relationship with God. God has placed promises on them. And the same thing is true for us. We don't earn our salvation. It's a gift. And we have to get that right in order to fully understand our faith as Christians. But that doesn't mean that there's not action that goes along with it. It doesn't mean that we don't live a certain way as Christian believers. We do because we are called to respond to what God has given us. We are called to respond to his grace. We respond to his salvation. And the way we respond is by living as his disciples, living out what we believe, living in obedience to him. You know, there's a a lecture by Tim Keller that I listen to a couple times a year. It's called The Supremacy of Christ and the Gospel in a Postmodern World, and it's way more exciting than that title makes it sound, okay? Um, It's about evangelism. How do you do evangelism in a postmodern secular culture? One that's forgetting its faith in Jesus Christ. That's what the whole lecture is about. Uh, and it, I think it's one of the best and most helpful things I've ever come across, both for my work as a pastor, but also for my personal faith as a Christian as well. And anyway, at one point in the lecture, Keller is talking about what he calls gospel realizing, which he says is the importance of realizing the power of the gospel at a deep core level, not just for others, but actually for ourselves. And as part of that, he shares an analogy that his wife, Kathy Keller, came up with. It's about Coke machines. You see, when you use a Coke machine, there's a limbo of sorts, right? Where you put the money in, but you don't have the Coke yet, right? So you put the coins in, and you make your selection, but then you, gotta, you have to wait. The, the machine hasn't produced the Coke yet. The money's in, but the Coke hasn't come out. And according to Kathy Keller... That's what 90% of the Christians she knows are like. The money is in, the gospel has gone into them, but nothing like real character change is coming out yet. They're in that limbo state where the coins are in, but they haven't dropped. The good news is in them, but it's not having the intended effect because they're lacking the obedience that goes along with it. They know it, but they don't know it. And if we're going to call ourselves Christians and we're going to say that we're disciples and we're going to say that we're on this road of long obedience, then we have to know it here. The coins 
have to drop. But here's the good news, and this brings us to the gospel this morning. Because the fact of the matter is that the money is in, right? As Christians, we believe that God has done all that we need in order to live like his people. We're not the ones who put those coins in. We're not the ones who pay the price. God is the one who paid the price. In fact, that's what we're about to celebrate again next weekend, right? The coming of a savior who paid that price. As we saw in verse 11, the Lord swore an oath to David, a sure oath he will not revoke. One of your own descendants I will place on your throne. And he did. He sent us a savior, a redeemer, a Messiah who could come and pay that price for us. He came humbly, quietly, without the pomp and circumstance that he deserved as a mere child. He grew up like a tender shoot, lived among us, ministered to us, and showed us what it looks like to live in a relationship with God. And then he took our place, suffered for us, and died on the cross on our behalf. But he didn't stay dead. Instead, he rose to new life. And one day, he will come again. He will fully restore and renew this entire world. He will fully restore and renew us, too. And in the meantime, through the power and presence of his spirit, we are called to live lives of anticipation and expectation, lives of advent as we wait for that. The coins need to drop. We need to live like the people we say we are. We need to obey God as the people he's called us to be because that, my friends, is what it looks like to live as faithful, obedient disciples of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God, amen. Will you pray with me? Lord God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for the calling that you have placed on our lives. You have made us your people, and it's of no effort of our own. We could not earn our salvation. We could not earn your forgiveness. We could not earn back our relationship with you. It's all your grace, and it's all a gift but you also call us to respond in obedience and faithful, faithfulness and in discipleship. Give us your Holy Spirit, Lord, and cultivate within us that spirit of obedience to you as our Lord and Savior and God. And it's in the name of the Savior you gave us who made that all possible, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.